Hello and welcome back to OT and Chill, all things occupational therapy with me, Kwaku. Happy New Year to all of you. Thanks for waiting for me to come back with the new episodes for 2022. And then we're continuing with the Occupation and Occupational Science mini-series. And on this episode, I'm speaking to Michael Sai, an occupational therapist based in the Philippines. But before we hear from him, I would love to hear from you about any episodes or any topics that you would like me to cover on future episodes on the podcast. So don't be shy to get in touch with me via my social media handles or dropping me an email to otandchill at gmail.com. Let's get right into it. So carrying on with the occupational science mini series, I am joined by another person from an, another part of the world, not, not the UK, uh, to just have a discussion about what occupational science and occupation is in their context. So I'm joined by Mike, Michael Sai. How are you doing today? Hi, I'm great. I'm doing great. Uh, Kwako, thank you for inviting me oh. in your podcast. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Uh, so, yeah, what, what, where, where are you from? What's your, what's your journey been like in occupational therapy? Um, yeah, and how are you finding the profession at the moment? Yeah, um, most people call me Mike. Uh, I'm an occupational therapist uh, from the Philippines. I've been an OT for around 12 years now. And uh, currently, I'm uh, working as an associate professor at the University of the Philippines in Manila. And um, I teach health professions education, interprofessional education. And I do uh, some research in, that, in those fields at the same time, occupational therapy in occupational science mm. so yeah okay that's me <laughs> and are you still enjoying it yes i do good 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 um we just quick question um about occupational therapy in, in the philippines what what is the current state of it have you guys got a, a lot of um, occupational therapists um is it well recognized what is it like to be an occupational therapist in the philippines Mm, oh, that's a good question. Uh, I've got, uh, I've been asked that a lot. Uh, occupational therapy in the Philippines started in the 1960s, so it's one of the first um, countries in Asia uh, that actually established an occupational therapy program in this part of the world. Um, but currently, uh, the number is just 4,000 uh, occupational therapists registered, but approximately i think half of that number are ot's who migrated elsewhere to work okay. as an ot so uh, our country is a uh, hundred million in terms of population and we have around a thousand or a little bit over a thousand serving this big population um, mm. and most of the ot's here are working in the pediatrics around 80 percent um, of the OTs here work with children and growing adolescents because our population is relatively younger compared to other countries. Mm -hmm. So okay. yeah, it's an overview of, okay. of OT here. Uh, obviously, you, you might not know this answer um, um, to the question I'm about to ask, but you can try your best <laughs> anyway. So why do you think a lot of the people um, migrate um, to other parts of the world to uh, to um, work as occupational therapists elsewhere rather than staying in in, in the Philippines? Well, Kwaku, actually, there are a lot of 
reasons why uh, these people migrate uh, to other countries. I think one of the the, the biggest um, reason for them leaving is uh, the financial uh, financial gains of being an OT. Uh, in for example, in in the U.S., uh, most Filipino OTs go there because uh, they are paid four times or five times as compared to being paid here. Um, also, uh, of course, personal and professional growth uh, is also one of the biggest reasons um, why they leave. Um, perhaps they wanted to study or they wanted to specialize in, in an area of speciality in occupational therapy, mm -hmm. which may not be available in our country and could be available there. So these are just some of the reasons why they, they choose to migrate. Mm -hmm. So you talked about being uh, an occupational therapist for starters and also uh, having an interest in occupational science, which was something that we're going to be talking about today. What, what does occupational science, I ask this to everyone in this mini-series I'm doing, what does occupational science mean to you? Um, what's your understanding of it? For me, occupational science is a discipline that is not just interdisciplinary, but also post-disciplinary. Uh, for me, being uh, I mean, occupational science, uh, being post-disciplinary means uh, it's, its scholarship and practice arrangements retains knowledge of the specifics of the discipline and their histories, including occupational therapy. But they are also inherently transgressive and capable of operating beyond the limitations of what is imposed by occupational science. So I think it's um, a liberating discipline, so to speak, because it allows me as a thinker and practitioner to see beyond statutory and traditional ways of doing, knowing and saying and even being. So I feel I feel like it's it's a post disciplinary discipline. <laughs> that's the meaning of occupational science for me. Mm, that's that's really interesting. It's just, I think a couple of more people have said that about um, occupation and occupational science, like mm. see, seeing beyond what is what is in front of us, basically, and trying to mm. understand uh, for starters why people have the certain routines that they do, why humans do what they do and I, I think now I'm beginning to have a much stronger um, understanding of, of, of what it is but sometimes again uh, you have to be a thinker to go beyond that um, mm. do you personally believe that uh, all occupational therapists have a potential to be occupational scientists or is it something that you really have to have a big interest in I think any occupational therapist or any person, even outside occupational therapy, could be an occupational science in terms of if you talk about capabilities. But the difference is those who go into occupational science are interested and uh, and you know um, motivated to go into that discipline. Mm. And not all occupational therapists are interested in those kinds of. Um, you know, mm. ways of thinking or ways of understanding. So um, in terms of potential, yes, anyone can have that mm. potential, but not everyone may be interested 
to mm-hmm. pursue yeah, no, occupational course. science. Yeah, oh, of course, of course. Um, it's a bit of a trick question I threw to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, in, in, so in, in the Philippines, is there a, a, a big um, interest in occupational science at, at the moment? Do you have a lot of people that are colleagues that are interested in going beyond the, uh, uh, what is in front of us in, in terms of occupation? I think, uh, like in any any countries, um, there's a there's a small group of people who 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 are interested in occupational science, and that also applies in the Philippines. Um, there are, I think, a very few number of scientists, scholars, and educators interested in it. Um, but just recently, I think this year, we were able to have a special interest group under the Occupational Therapy Association that mm. focuses on occupational science, and and that's a that's a good um, start, like a milestone mm. for us. Mm. So we're very we're composed of I think less than ten people who are mm. <laughs> championing occupational science here, um, but it's not big, mm. not big. That's that's okay. Though. I think so. That, again, it's, it's as long as someone's doing it. <laughs> that's the that's the main that's the main thing. So, so when you um, I'm trying to get some of how you got your interest into the into the into this area. Um, what what is your interest area in this uh, in occupational science and um, when it comes to occupational science? How did you how did you come to this? Okay. Uh... Well, I tried to take down some notes uh, on on this question. I think you're going to really a- ask me this. <laughs> <laughs> and um, for me, uh, occupational science is such a broad topic because it, it is concerned about humans and how they experience the world around them, around us, through doings, knowings, and sayings. Mm. And from that broad constellation of concepts, I became interested to explore and understand why people use illicit drugs mm. or drugs uh, like illegal drugs, as mm. we call it here. Um, my interest on the topic is actually political, personal, and professional. <laughs> uh, and um, I just wanted to, because many people ask me this when they ask me, like, what are your PhD on? Why, why are you doing research in this area and i think it all started when i did my phd in 2016 in tokyo japan and it was the time when the war on drugs policy was instituted in our country the philippines Mm. and at that time i was in the middle of making a you know dissertation proposal and not to mention i was very confused and lost at that time (laughs) I really didn't know what to study. And so I sought advice from my PhD supervisor who told me to think of a topic that is first relevant for my country. Second is it should be a topic that is under or unexplored by any scholar in the field. And third is it has to be a topic that is interesting enough for me to endure studying until Mm. I finish the program in three years. And the topic on drug using within the lens of occupational science was already being explored, actually, when I was doing my, you know, literature review, but not yet from an Asian or Southeast Asian perspective. Mm. 
at least at that time. And moreover, going, going deeper into my study, I became intrigued with the concept of the dark side of occupation by Rebecca Twinley and non-sanctioned occupations by Nikki Kaipek, which both really encapsulated the form, function, and meaning of using illicit drugs in everyday life. So that's my per professional and political reasons for going into mm. this topic. And for the personal reason is I really wanted to delve into this topic because I wanted to understand my father better, who used to be a user and dependent of illicit mm. drugs. He actually passed when I was 11 years old and from a tragic uh, car accident and through my PhD and you know, what I'm doing after the PhD, I am able to have a better understanding of what could have been his life or, you know, what his life experience was like through this sort of vicarious scholarship mm. because I was able to interview, you know, people recovering from illicit drug use, those people who are in conflict with the law. And, you know, I just got to have a better understanding of him mm. through them. So there are really different reasons why I <laughs> went into this, and I'm happy I, I did. Oh, well, we're, we're, I'm very happy that you did because, um, it, it, again, you've added to the knowledge base of, um, of, of humans, basically. You've had so, mm -hmm. in, in understanding why people, especially from an occupational um, lens uh, point of view. Um, so, I'm, I'm, yeah, thank you for, for doing that. Uh, it's really interesting, isn't it? Like, I think... I personally believe I'm not. I don't. I wouldn't class myself as an occupational science, scientist, but I just love humans, um, and I love to un understand humans, and I love to sit down and explore humans, and you know, just. I think it's all about the connection when you you are an occupational therapist for me anyway. You do, when your ability to sit down and, and and try really get to the grips of why and what people do <laughs> and, and the real reasons that the, the mind because all our minds are different aren't they so yeah trying to find out what they do and then actually assisting them to either get back to what they're doing or or to help them improve certain areas in their life and and, and that's what really I find fascinating about occupational therapy and now my better understanding of occupational science <laughs> makes it much more clearer for me to actually what I'm doing when I am trying to establish those connections with people that I work with or just everyday people that I come in contact with. Um, so are you, are you are you continuing to do research in this area or have you sort of left it alone for a little bit and then jumped onto something else? Um, I have side projects okay. on, on this area. I'm, I'm uh, I'm not leading it, but I'm mentoring um, occup younger occupational therapists who are also um, continuously doing this. Mm. Um, but we're trying to um, go into other um, subtopics as well, um, not necessarily drug using, but also um, other mm. other other areas uh, such as access of of people, you know, uh, people who are marginalized, and mm. and we and um, but you know the core about hidden occupations about occupational justice uh, are always in those side projects that i do mm. at the moment mm. very interesting very interesting so you did your phd you studying for three years so it's a long time <laughs> to study and you're and you and you're continuing to do uh, research as well um, and assisting other people to do research as well uh, what do you think is some of the barriers 
to people accessing occupational science in your context? Um, and then a second part to that question uh, is, how did you find trying to get your work published in occupational therapy uh, science mm -hmm. like realm? Uh, how, mm. how was it like? What was it, what was it like trying to do that? Yeah, well, I think it is not a secret that occupational science is an academic discipline. So when you say academic, it's abstract, it's intellectual, and sometimes to a certain extent, it's an it's aloof to daily reality. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, when I started my journey with occupational science as a PhD student, I felt like I was reading Latin. <laughs> I feel I felt like it was a different world and even until now sometimes I feel that and this is a characteristic of occupational science that can actually cloud its purpose of making people better understand occupations and human doings and everything in between them hmm. I think that's the purpose of occupational science but because of how it's being delivered and how it's being discussed sometimes it clouds that very purpose of why we're doing occupational science. Hmm. But I think the beauty of occupational science is that it allows scholars to liberate their ideas and musings and put them into writing so people can read them. And the readers, who are the researchers, graduate students, and educators, and those enthusiasts like you or, you know, mm -hmm. our friends, yeah. and then interpret the salient arguments and principles of occupational science for practitioners for them to be used in service work teaching training and even policy making mm. and i think one of the reasons uh, or one of the ways to do that is really through you know um trying to use other medium to communicate occupational science such as this podcast mm. and you know other other means using mm. technology media and using other formats to really make people see really the beauty of humans and their doings mm -hmm. yeah 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 again I, I think you're right i think some of the when you're a student uh, probably you're basically forced in, into <laughs> having to read and i've had several discussions about this with um other people on the, on the podcast but uh, it, it's like again, it's, it's rare for people to pick up um, occupational therapy or science, occupational science literature uh, once they probably leave university and are not in that mind frame. Um, because it, we, because you, a lot of the times you want things that directly support your practice um, because you need to get to where you need to get to, to the people you work with. At the same time, perhaps having a better understanding of occupational science will probably help us in practice as well. Um, which I've come to realize by the same time, um, like you talked about, I think we do probably need to use a lot of different types of mediums to try to get the research to the people <laughs> on the ground. And, and um, I, th I think one place that I find a lot of uh, things related to occupational science is social media. I think social media is a, is a great, it can, be, it can be positive and negative at the same time, but we'll look at the positive side of it. Uh, <laughs> when we talk about the sharing of knowledge and making like infographics for people to have a quick access mm. to, I think it's, it's, it's really valuable. And I've learned a lot just from looking at different ideas and concepts related to occupational um, science in that way. Um, do you have a, so 
in terms of accessing occupational science journals in terms of your writing do you did you ever come up against any barriers or do you know of other people that have come against up against any barriers when maybe submitting their work and having to change certain language that they've used in their mm. writing uh, have you experienced that uh well i i think i did i just didn't really I, I think it wasn't explicit at for me um but i think one of the barriers of of publishing mm. in, in occupational science is really um the use of language because occupational science is written largely in english in the english language and we see a lot of occupational scientists who speak in spanish portuguese german french they they um and chinese or probably in my language um and i think that is a limitation at the point at this point but i'm happy because um there are occupational therapy and occupational science journals who or that actually invite um papers from different languages and they're very open in translating mm -hmm. some works into different languages to make them more accessible mm -hmm. um and another barrier is really the lack of mentors and the lack of people who train younger scholars or, mm -hmm. or practitioners to think from an occupational lens. I think that's one of the barriers at the moment. Mm. Because, for example, there could be countries around the world where there is no one doing occupational science and, you know, it may cost them to study elsewhere just to get a mentor to, to, to guide them on occupational science. I think I was just very fortunate that my co-supervisor uh, did a PhD in occupational science so I got introduced to that I got some encouragement you know it, it was difficult like I said there there was a time that I wanted to to, to stop doing occupational science because yeah. it's it's not easy but because somebody is guiding you um, even if it's not all a walk in the park mm. it, it, you know somebody telling you no you, you do it I, I know you can do it but you just need to you know work harder and <laughs> and understand better so I think those are the two things I'm thinking right now like in terms of barrier it's the language and and the lack of people guiding mm. uh, those who are who want to be in occupational science yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, can, I can imagine so. I can imagine so because yeah, if there isn't a lot of people like you're talking about, you got a special interest group. But if there isn't a lot of you guys, and actually people want to do it, or you guys want to encourage other people to do it, um, mm -hmm. but there isn't enough people to to, to support mm -hmm. us, then yeah, definitely a barrier. Um, the language one, um, you can see it getting better, right? You can see it is an area that's getting best, like you said, there's journals yes. that are accepting things. So that's that's a positive, isn't it? Yes, it is. It Good. is. Good. Yeah. Good. Um, and there, uh, but, but just to be fair, uh, occupational science is uh, a relatively new discipline. Yes. And so um, we will not be expecting a lot of philosophers, scholars, theorists, in that area mm -hmm. um and i think uh in order to do that in order for us to promote the the discipline so other could also 
work within the field is really to start sharing occupational science research outside occupational science mm. outside occupational therapy so they get to appreciate and and i think that can can be a a space for collaboration a space for further discussion mm. on on occupational science in mm. in general so there's a, it sounds like there's a lot of potential out there right now yeah. for to, there's opportunities to 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 expand our wings uh, yeah. <laughs> a, a little bit more. Okay, all right. Well, listen, um, we're gonna move on a little bit because I know you. There's a lot of things that you you're interested in, and um, and I'm really interested in occupation. Um, from an occupational science perspective in your context and in your country and in in, in your environment. So, um, the. I know in the Philippines, I've, or I've heard you speak um, about many different things, um, but there's a lot of things about the, some hidden occupations, and I, I've got a real interest in Rebecca's work as well. Um, what are some of the hidden occupations um, that are least explored in, in the Philippines? I know that's a big question. <laughs> what are some of the things that are least explored by occupational scientists and occupational therapists in, in, in the Philippines? Well, well, actually, uh, we, when I was into occupational science, I mean, after my PhD, I started exploring um, subtopics, other topics in within the realm of occupational science. And one of the things that that got me interested is the beauty pageant culture mm. that we have here in in our country, and be, because of that, we, you know, it was the pandemic at that time, um, and every everything here is on lockdown and so i had to to wait for my university to decide like how to arrange the classes online etc so it was a two month or i think two and a half months of just you know taking a step back from university work because we're waiting for how we will be adjusting and you know um i think i cannot uh, I get stressed when I, I'm not doing anything. <laughs> so I decided to, um, you know, watch YouTube, Netflix, and really know what's out there. And I came across um, a good friend of mine and I just, you know, talked to her about, um, hey, what do you think about the occupations of those people uh, who like joining beauty pageants in the Philippines and, it, and she said like how 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 is that um, why did you think about that and and, I, and then I just uh, told Pauline Pauline Martinez is um, that co-author that I, I talked with about this um, project and you know I, I just you know gave her an outline of my idea and I, I, I just told her that you know, um, there are occupations that I think they do that they don't really talk about, um, such as, um, you know, bleaching and um, trying to um, do excessive exercises or non-eating. Mm. Uh, they um, engage in, I mean, they engage in occupations that we would expect them to do, like, um, you know, training to wear, um, fashion apparel and walking and dancing and all those things but I was more interested in like this hidden side of, of the modern day beauty pageant and of course we framed this 
this study and this um, literature review from Rebecca Twinley's concept of the dark side of occupation. Mm-hmm. And after we've drafted, uh, you know, the, the, the article, the manuscript, we sent it to <laughs> Rebecca mm-hmm. so she could, you know, see and give us some feedback. And it's, it's good to be working with her on the, on the article. Eventually, she became a co-author because she added also um, her thought on, on the topic because she said that, Uh, she told me that they never really talk about beauty within the dimension of occupation or an occupational science in the UK. But apparently, based on our literature review, historically, the first beauty pageant started in Scotland, in the UK. Oh, so okay. so okay. It's, it's like, oh, why aren't we talking about this? This is some history that, you know... Um, and yeah, it, it, in, in the Philippines, uh, beauty pageant is part of the culture and when you say part of the culture it's part of our daily lives um beauty is a dimension that we see we we we, we take into consideration at work at anywhere mm-hmm. when you go to the groceries when you you know you get assisted if you look a certain way and you know if you look fairer you'll get more chances of getting the job these kinds of you know, discourses, we don't talk about it because we're, we're, we're afraid to be judged or we're mm. afraid to judge others. But, you know, as an, if you're an occupational scientist and you're looking at these discourses from that lens, you know, we can explore a lot of things. And we were able to, in that paper, in that particular paper, we were able to outline what these hidden occupations are, mm. Um, mm. that these beauty pageant contenders engage in just to achieve the goal which is the crown yeah, yeah. <laughs> to, to be the the, the quote-unquote beauty queen mm. that they wanted to be and for me it was a pandemic product <laughs> <laughs> and we did it during the pandemic and um i think um we we thought that it it might be superficial at first but I, i i the reason why we published this because i know there is a discourse that people need to talk about mm. um like the dimension of beauty within occupational participation mm. or occupational performance in general or work you know just to, to make it simple work <laughs> yeah, yeah um and uh, we, we were kind of surprised because um after that article got published You know, people contacted us, you know, both in positive and not so positive ways. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but, but again, the goal of the discussion paper, it is a discussion paper. Mm. It's a data free paper, meaning to say we did not interview or we did not collect survey data, but really from literature. And uh, we, the, the goal of that paper was to spark conversations, mm-hmm. to spark discourses. And I think whether we get the good questions or not so good comments from people, that's the goal. Okay. And we, I think we are, we achieved that and we are continuously getting people interested, intrigued by it. So <laughs> I well. think... that's good that's yeah that's a good thing and again when we talked earlier about how to try to get the occupational science um conversations to the to to the masses let's say if people are actually contacting engaging in 
discussions negative positive um in between um that's a that's a good thing <laughs> is achieving the goal of actually getting people to to recognize that this is an area to to discuss mm. um i'm very interested in some of what what some of the negative um uh feedback or or, or comments were uh, as well as the positive uh, again what were some of those yeah. things that people said well uh actually uh as you may know uh when you share your work uh you don't just share it in conferences or you you, you don't expect people to download the, the whole article um but, but because of the you know the technology and social media we're able to um, publish and you know share our work there and so more people can access and because of that um there's no filter at all as to who would take a look at, at our work mm. And there was um, an instance where we got a comment that this paper on beauty is not relevant to occupational therapy or occupational therapists. And you know, there's this. There was a, an ongoing thread in social media where um, the critique was saying that there are more important topics that we need to discuss at this you know, within this global crisis, amid the global crisis, and why beauty, why this, why why talk about this, etc. Um, and, and that really made us think, of course, that, oh, that's that's valid. We, we, we feel that that's a valid question. Why do... And that really made us ask why. Why did we even do this? <laughs> um, but I think... Um, because it's new, because no one really has done the work before, I would accept the fact that people would question that. Yes. Like, what, why is this relevant? And and I think that really just confirms that what we wrote is new and mm. open for mm. ongoing exploration and, and discourse. And I'm happy because it means that what we did is original. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's always a good thing. That's always a good thing. Uh, actually, let's have a bit of a discussion about um, the, the idea of beauty and what what, what beauty means. Um, again, you've done a literature, literature review. I'm sure you've watched a lot of different things. Um, I, I would, I'm not. I'm not an expert on beauty. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I just studied it. <laughs> but you're more of an expert than I am. But in terms of beauty, what, 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 what? If we, if we take away the beauty pageant aspect of it, mm. we, can, we come back to mm. it in a minute. What is the mm. concept of beauty about? What, where is it exactly, and how, how does it come about? Let's say. Mm. Uh, I think beauty is is socially constructed. And when you say socially constructed, it really depends on the culture. It depends on the context. Well, there is no one definition of beauty. That's what I'm trying to say. And um, within our work, we were able to gather different perspectives, such as feminism, um, dominance of white beauty standards, capitalism, classism, class mm. politics, morality, religion, culture. Mm. Um, and in different parts of the world, there are different standards that women and men and mm. people in between LGBT community would need to adhere so that they can participate in daily life better. Mm. And I think that is not a secret. But it's it's sometimes unspoken, or it could be a spoken rule, where 
for example um you 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 know you cannot get married if you looks you look a certain way you have to look a certain way to get a husband or get married or if you're in this if you're a member of a certain religion you need to exude a certain to look that a certain way mm-hmm. and you know there are a lot of cultural moral conflicts within those even the for example um using of tattoos mm-hmm. um in our culture in our ancient culture here in the philippines having a tattoo in women means they're beautiful okay you know if you have tattoos on your face or on your body it means you're beautiful for men if you have tattoos it means you're courageous you're respected but you know when laws came and you know in when you, when you have tattoos sometimes the perception or the judgment is you came from the prisons okay and and you know when you look back in history in in our context in the philippines When you have tattoos, you, it means you're beautiful. Mm. But now, since it's socially constructed, if a woman ha- would have tattoos, you know, within a Christian Catholic culture that we have here, which is a, a predominant religion here in the Philippines, people would judge or stereotypically say that you're not becoming of a woman if you have tattoos. Mm. So those things, um, those are the things that And, and and our argument is really beauty is a dimension in occupational participation whether we like to include it in our frameworks or models or not mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what we're trying to but i'm trying to say yeah mm. i think i think you're you're spot on in, in a lot of things that you say um as much as we don't like to say it and uh, a beauty is it, massive it's, it's it's massive in in what happens in Uh, in our daily lives uh, either personally or how we look at the world um or uh, through me- media through music through mm. in any aspect of what we do um people look a certain way will probably um get certain jobs um uh, if you look on the television it, it tends to be people who are very well preemed um very slim um people uh basically the a very stereotypical version of what um what beautiful people are in whichever context that you are in um uh, and and that's a and that's a shame because it that's not the standard that's not the whole population is it <laughs> wherever you go <laughs> yeah. that that standard of beauty and actually the the what people when talking back to the hidden occupations that you were saying what mm. people then do to try mm-hmm. to reach that level and the standard of what they yeah. think beauty should be is some of the things that yeah. we should be exploring in in our mm-hmm. occupational therapy spaces mm-hmm. um if they're willing mm-hmm. to obviously share it with us and this mm-hmm. and this aspects of it that like the skin bleaching i didn't know they happened in the philippines as well is, there, is that is that thing in there yeah it's a thing it's a million dollar business here really like, being fair is you know the widening products and even the i don't know if you know the glutathione injections like you inject it on yourself and um, no. it's a uh, glutathione is a it's a drug that's actually used for cancer and it it actually the side effect of the glutathione uh, makes our skin lighter 
That's why cancer patients usually look paler and fairer when they're undergoing chemotherapy. But that is a drug that is commercially available, whether illegal or legal or, you know, borderline. When it comes to the market, sometimes they can be bought in, you know, black markets as you as you know it. And that there are people here and they are not, and they even show it in social media that they inject themselves with that substance so they could look fairer and glow they that they would their skin would glow more and we don't know the implications of using a drug that is not supposed to be for that mm. person mm. if you know what i mean there's yeah. ethics in it and but people still do it because they want to keep a certain standard of beauty so that they can continuously engage in whatever part work or occupation they want to because mm. of their looks something like that mm-hmm. uh, uh, yeah i think yeah i think the white to probably coming back to the looking fairer it's been probably driven i don't know where it's come from but it's been driven as the ultimate standard of beauty across all cultures like the, the more fairer you are the 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 more opportunities that you're going to get. And I know from my um, heritage, uh, the Ghanaian background and even probably African um, background, there's a lot of um, things that, there's a lot of people that do skin bleaching. Um, and it is quite, it is a danger, well, it can be a dangerous practice. Obviously, if people that are doing it choose to do it. That's what they're doing. But it can be a very uh, a dangerous practice. And and ultimately, what what sometimes I get a little bit confused about is some people will choose to do that, which is obviously their choice. Um, mm-hmm. But, but they, they might never reach the the place that they feel that they should be. In, and that, that obviously then brings along its some of the mental health difficulties or or uh yeah just just not achieving the things that they want to and that that's the impact i, I don't really want people to experience if it makes sense mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. and i wonder yeah. how how occupational therapists can yeah. um support people yeah through that process or support people when they've reached a certain place where mm-hmm. they can't get to where they want to do and how we mm-hmm. can help them achieve what they think that they should be achieving if it makes sense is that am i making sense i'm not sure if i yes. am <laughs> yes yes because we might not be as ot's if you're an ot listening in this discussion if if you're not targeting beauty as an outcome or you're not even working on you know doing activities related to beauty but mm. the mental health the physical manifestations mm. of those hidden occupations might be concerning for the ot Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily the beauty, but we need to understand and be open to the idea that these people are experiencing this disability, injury, or any disease or mental health issues. It and beauty could be part of or a contributing factor to that, and mm-hmm. and we need to understand it because later on, as an OT, you will design an activity or a therapy regimen for. The person or a group of people, and you need to have an under a deeper understanding of where where those are coming from or their history, their profile, their occupational profile, actually. Mm. And and you know, as you know, we need to be to be person centered when we provide our services to mm. them. And so that 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 this is why we're we're doing this um, 
initial work mm -hmm. mm. have you have you in your research and in your readings have you come across um, the uh, concept of beauty in like in in male dominated areas as in how do men perceive beauty because a lot of uh, stuff that probably i would probably see um is in terms of beauty anyways driven towards um people who identify as themselves as women uh, you know when talk, we talk about makeup mm -hmm. skin bleaching mm -hmm. um uh, weight loss uh, all, mm -hmm. all these aspects of things that might contribute to beauty is there anything that specifically men have difficulties with well, actually, uh, when, when we were looking at the hidden occupations, I'll just outline it very quickly, like mm. the use of illicit beauty products, you have cosmetic surgery routine, mm. you have weight control regimen, like the very um, radical way, like laxatives, diet aids, enemas, um, sex work, escorting, and so sexual exploitation. So these are some of the hidden occupations that we have unearthed from from the review that we did and there and there's no like particular if this is only for females mm. or women mm. actually men men also engage in these okay. hidden occupations um maybe just a different form mm -hmm. or for different function because for example illicit beauty products um you know to build some muscles or to bulk up very fast, you take anabolic steroids. Um, men now, uh, at least in our country, and I think also in Africa, bleaching is also used by men mm. a lot. Um, again, for, for different reasons. And um, I think even for um, cosmetic surgery routines, um, now if you want your nose to be, to be more, you know, to, to be uncertain shape, um, men uh, there's no gender there mm. i mean there's no uh, inequality like men lgbtq members go undergo these surgeries for mm. cosmetic purposes weight control regimen you know mm. can are done and of course sex work sex work is up you know men women lgbt mm. engage in these occupations for different reasons but Again, the focus of, of the paper is really they do it uh, like, for example, sex work, they engage in it because they want to sustain a lifestyle in the beauty world mm. or in the world of beauty pageants because it's expensive to be in that world. Mm. It's so, and, so fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> so fascinating. This beauty pageants, um, I, I, uh, I'm guessing it's a very big deal. Like you said in the Philippines, it's, it's a big deal. Is it shown on TV? Is it like advertised everywhere? And is it people try to, it, my thinking of it, do people try to use it as a way of bringing their families up from uh, certain um, maybe poverty or uh, deprived areas? And so people would then engage in some of these uh things that you've just yeah. said to try to reach it how, how often do you see that kind of stuff how how big is it in in the philippines basically that's what i'm trying to get yeah. at <laughs> yes uh yes it's it's everywhere in social media um for example the miss universe will be it's not it's in this week will happen this week so people mm. are you know talking about it in on twitter on social media everywhere um and also when you go to the smallest village villages in the philippines or small towns the the, the beauty pageant culture starts there mm. so it 
could be like an interest it could just be an interest or it can be a business of the family you know just to to keep on training as a child or a, a child uh, usually a female child would would be sent to be to be trained to to sing and dance and wear these um, beautiful dresses and you know start with the school and once you you know you know the habit of of creating a routine or a ritual mm -hmm. like any activity or occupation you get trained and you you know how it works until you go to high school and then you started joining regional pageants until you go to the national pageant until you reach the you know the national pageant which is the biggest one here so that you can compete internationally and i think there are stories here that begins from that not all contenders in any modern day beauty pageant undergo the same process but that's quite common mm -hmm. here mm -hmm. yeah and what are some of the uh not so positive stories that you might or comes across in in that what kind of people what, what's happened to some people who have been who've gone through these habits and uh, and routines and not not made it as there been any tragic stories or unfortunate stories related to mm -hmm. that oh um well i can only base um based on what i watched on documentaries yeah. and because again the the article that we did or the research that we did is data free we, mm -hmm. we didn't interview anyone but of course um when you engage in these hidden occupations and particularly if you did not win or mm. clinch the, the, the crown mm. um if you did not win you you could end up in other places you know mm. um and you know sadly there is um i think we wrote that in the paper that there is a syndication of prostitution within that industry where you know you're beautiful so you but you did not win um you might want to explore other paths mm. to, to sustain um yourself financially and you know keep yourself abreast and sustain yourself basically mm. um i'm not saying that sex work is something that is immoral or or negative mm. we're not saying that but you know sometimes there are stories that end up not so good for for other people when you say not so good like um you know in terms of career because joining a beauty pageant hopefully brings you to the career that you like but some didn't just get that mm. and that's sometimes unfortunate for for the people who join especially if they invested in this routine and the activities for years and years mm. um but we have to remember that Again, there is a beauty standard. If you are not, if you did not take all the boxes within those guidelines, yeah. you can never make it, even if you work hard. So, yeah, and there are tragic stories, of course, as you may know, um, cosmetic surgery routines, yeah. if you overdo it, you can end up not only, you know, breaking your nose or, or, ending up with more injuries and there's also some mental health issues that can um develop uh from there and and yeah. the same thing with weight control and illicit you know bleaching and, yeah. and those products so 
it's a fascinating world that is just yeah you, you would never think about it if, <laughs> if you don't explore it <laughs> yeah. because something if it doesn't come up obviously in your normal everyday practice that it's not something that you would you'd explore by the same time I think it's something that we definitely definitely as occupational therapist mm-hmm. need to be aware of and then and I applaud you for the work that you even try to well you've done it in the discussion paper that you, you you've done with your colleagues um I applaud that because you're trying to explore something that maybe occupational therapists haven't really done before and but it's really really important in terms of all our everyday occupations because there's a lot of people out there that we work with that even the routines that they do in every day in terms of putting on makeup every day mm-hmm. um that they do so it, that that's one aspect of um beauty and then we know that a lot of people have body image um difficulties yeah. that, that's another aspect of of beauty that we might have to you know uh, have a better understanding of through through an occupational um, um lens if we if yeah. we were to help the people that we work with so thank you very much for undertaking that that work um what other just last question have you got any any other projects along the line that we should be looking out for and then and and also how would we how would people uh, contact you if, if they wanted to find out more about um yeah some of the work you're doing or the paper um especially um well thank you Kwaku, for that i just wanted to add to to your previous comment before mm, before yeah. i answer your last question it's really why don't we think about that as ot's because we don't even start asking wow. about that that's why we don't talk about that and and you know most of our clients the service users that we service users that we deal with every day usually do not share if we don't ask yeah. <laughs> or if we don't engage them into these kinds of conversations so that's something that OTs around the world might you know think about <laughs> when they go back to their practice um, later on um, but yeah they can of course contact me in my social media and mm. and you know um, they can easily con- see contact me via email I think it's it's available online mm. um, but my current projects are really in health professions education because I teach teachers. I mm. teach teachers who teach OTs, nurses, <laughs> medical doctors. Um, and I do a lot of interprofessional education research at the moment because I really like to um, share my OT-ness to, to other professions and also learn from other professions. I'm really interested to that. But in the space of occupational science, I have current projects on um, occupational justice, uh, particularly the the further development of the occupational justice health questionnaire, which was which was originally produced by Elizabeth Townsend mm. and Anne Wilcock. Yeah. Um, that's a tool that really tries to measure or identify occupational injustices in the day-to-day life of people, groups, and populations. And we have just i think two years ago we've translated that in our language the filipino language and um you know i've been sharing the work in conferences and writing about it in in different um spaces mm-hmm. and it's good because people within ot and outside ot are asking about the tool and would like to see how occupational justice can be applied in their own disciplines. So, so very happy to continue uh, those kinds of work. And if they wanted or they, if they're interested in the work 
that I do. Of course, I have colleagues like Rebecca and yeah. and the other occupational scientists that I work with. If if they are interested in their work, we're happy to start and spark a conversation with with you, and hopefully. Uh, we can work with each other like what we're doing now yeah, <laughs> of, course, yeah. of course no honestly thank you so much for taking the time off again it's the same thing i always get i always learn something new and i've always I've learned a lot again from this conversation so thank you for taking the time to come thank and you. speak to me Thank you so much, Mike, for taking the time to come and speak to me. Again, I always say it, I do learn a lot from all these episodes and speaking to different people and getting different perspectives. I hope you guys enjoyed it too. If you do enjoy the podcast, remember to share with your colleagues, your friends, or anyone that's got an interest in listening to Occupational Therapy and Chill. Until next time, stay safe.